0: So, Matthew 6, this is, of course, where we have been for a number of months now, walking through the model prayer. Uh, we've laid out the context of this prayer in this entire chapter, week number one. Uh, we've walked through the model prayer phrase by phrase over the past few weeks. And we've even covered verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 are a footnote that attached to verse number 12. So, we've covered. The first 15 uh, verses of Matthew 6, and I want us to see three more verses, 16, 17, and 18 this morning. So I'm going to pick it up in verse number 9, and we're going to read through the prayer and then see how Jesus segues right into another topic. So uh, Matthew 6, verse number 9, the Bible says this, uh, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then 14 and 15 are meant to be a footnote that are in tandem with verse number 12. And if you missed that a sermon, you can go back and listen to it from the website or watch the, watch the video of that. But we elaborated on these verses already. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Verse number 16, moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. If you read through this chapter of Matthew 6, you you get this cadence to to the the rhythm of the chapter. That there is this, hey, when you're giving and you're doing your alms, don't do it to be seen of people. Do it before God and do it for a reward from Him. And then when you're praying, don't do it to be seen of people. Go pray and be in your closet in secret and do it for God. And then when you're he moves right into another topic. When you're fasting, don't do it for people, do it for God. And he says that this should not be something that you want people to look at you and see. It doesn't mean that no one can ever know if you're fasting. There are times in the Bible where the nation or, or corporate, corporately they fast together. There are also times practically where as a spouse you may, you may have to communicate to your spouse, hey, I'm fasting today so don't make as large of a meal rather than sitting down at a meal and she says or he says, are you hungry and you have to lie, oh, I have to keep this a secret. That's not what, what the Bible's saying. The Bible is saying, look, Don't do it to be seen of men. Do it for the Lord, and that should be your motive, and that should be your heart. But Jesus segues directly from prayer into fasting, and he really kind of merges and joins the two together. And what's funny about this chapter is that he starts with alms and giving, and if you've been around church any length of time, you'll hear sermons on that, and you should because it's intensely biblical, and the Bible has a lot to say on that. You'll hear lots of sermons on a prayer, and you should, because it's intensely biblical, and the Bible has a lot to say about that. But you'll very rarely hear a sermon on fasting. But it, too, is intensely biblical, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. And I would contend this this morning, that prayer and fasting are the oldest and the dearest of friends. And they're meant to go together, and Jesus knows what he's doing when he walks right out of the model prayer and says, hey, moreover, hey, don't forget this, when you fast thinking that this will be part of our lives. Not, hey, if you fast or if you decide to, but he has this assumption that when you do this, this is gonna happen, this is gonna be part of your life. And this morning, I want us to consider this topic based off of Matthew 6 and really the model prayer, and that's prayer coupled with fasting. And I want us to see, and we'll, we'll get to Esther 4, and I'll explain that here after I pray, and we have some music, but I want us to see the power that prayer coupled with fasting can hold in our Christian lives, uh, as we consider this thought, prayer a couple of fasting, I want you quickly just to uh, write in, in your mind. I want you to picture what does a person who fasts look like? Just kind of build a mental image. Uh, maybe for you that's, uh, that's a spiritual stalwart, that's it's grandma or somebody that was just unbelievably a mature Christian and they did that. Maybe for you it's, uh, it's a, someone who's a bit fanatical in their faith and, you know, you get this John the Baptist-esque picture in your mind. And maybe someone who fasts for you is someone who is just a, a health nut and they are a bag of bones because they're constantly <laughs> depriving themselves of nutrition and, and a health nut. I don't know what that looks like for you, but... Uh, inside of our mind's eye, as we picture what a person who fasts look like should be, Jesus. Jesus is a guy who fasted and who taught his disciples how to fast, who talked about fasting and frankly had had much to say about it, both in practicing it and and how others should practice it. And fasting is a spiritual discipline that oftentimes is uh, ignored Uh, Donald Whitney has a book called Spiritual Disciplines, and he writes about different ones, and uh, he says that fasting is, according to him, the most feared and the most misunderstood of all the spiritual disciplines. And he says it's, it's fearful for us because generally we think of fasting, you know, depriving myself of food for some spiritual end or purpose or goal. We think of it dreadfully. And we generally have kind of a negative connotation in our mind of what fasting uh, may be. And for some Christians, fasting would be in the same vein as you may as well ask me to walk across hot coals with my shoes off or handle poisonous snakes. Like that's just, that's crazy town. That's something that is, that is just far-fetched for someone to do. Why would I possibly uh, do that? And some people have a, a fear of fasting. Some people have just a misunderstanding of fasting. That's largely because we don't talk about it a lot. Think, think in your own mind. How many sermons have you heard on giving? Have you heard on prayer, which Matthew 6 is about, but how many have you heard on fasting? I've heard a sermon or two on fasting in my life, but frankly, not many. There's, and it, it is something that is pervasive through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Fasting actually is mentioned more times than baptism is, two more times than baptism in the Bible. But we don't talk about it a lot. So it's often misunderstood on what is it and how is it done and why is it done and, and what does this mean for me or, or should I do it or what's it, is it going to give me some credit with God? There's a lot of questions uh, that surround and circle fasting that uh, need to be answered and it's something that really at the end of the day, it's a spiritual discipline and I think the, the most prominent of all the spiritual disciplines, it goes against our grain the most And it goes against not just who we are as humans, but who we are as Americans. We are, by and large, comfort creatures. It's very rare that an American has to go without something. If we want something, by and large, we have the means, we have the resources, we can work a couple extra hours, we can figure it out. We can do it. We don't have conversations about, am I going to eat today or not? We have conversations about, am I going to go to Cancun or Punta Cana? You know, those are, that's us, as Americans. We're, we're a little self-indulgent. We like our comforts. We like uh, having something that's going to, to, to make life a little bit easier on me. And we are, by and large, denialless, sometimes even gluttonous, if we're honest. And so fasting is something that pushes against the grain of just who we are naturally, because our body does and is made to have, want have food but it pushes against the grain of who we are as, as American Christians. So this is something that is difficult for us, but I, I say this, we dare not overlook the significance of it in, in the Bible that any more than we would overlook the significance of giving or praying or baptism or anything else. It's something that's in the Bible, it's significant for us, and there's a lot to learn. And there are, there are a lot of passages that I could look at for fasting and different people have fasted. And, and I was kind of locked and loaded on a passage in the Gospels that I wanted to uh, launch from today. But as I studied over the last couple of weeks, I just kept getting sucked back into Esther 4, this chapter. Of, there's a lot of themes in the chapter, but really at its core, it's about prayer and fasting. And I want you to see that this morning. I want to walk through this chapter this morning. I think that... Esther and Mordecai these two characters in this chapter of the Bible will give us a window into what is fasting and why would we do it and how is it done and what does it uh, what can it accomplish for us so I want you to see it this morning go to Esther 4 like I said earlier if uh, if you struggle finding that go right in the middle of your Bible psalms back a book is job back one more book is Esther so Esther 4, I'm going to give you two minutes worth of context to catch you up because you catch the story right in the middle in Esther chapter 4. So thus far, here is what you have in inside of Esther. There are basically four main characters inside of this plot and this story. So there's two Jew- Jewish characters and there's two uh, Persian characters. The Jewish characters are Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai are cousins. Esther's a lady, Mordecai's a guy. And Esther is this lady that is... Uh, assumed into the Persian kingdom and becomes, through a series of events that we'll discuss later, she becomes the queen of Persia. And she has a cousin named Mordecai who is, it seems like, a, a government higher up, and he has some, some clout, he has some position inside of the government, but both of them, along with their 15 million companions and kinsmen, other Jews, are assumed under the kingdom and they are, they are captives, so to speak. And here they are under the kingdom, and there's these two Persian characters that are in the story as well. There's a, a guy named Ahasuerus. That's the king, and that's more of a title than it is a name. His name actually in history would be Xerxes I. But here is this King Xerxes, and then there's also this guy named Haman. Haman would be a Persian higher up. And thus far in this story, Haman and Mordecai, the Persian higher up and the Jewish higher up, have butted heads. And Haman has been promoted and he's given this place of prominence. And, and the king even said, hey, Haman, when he comes by, bow to him. Give him reverence. Give him respect. And Mordecai is a Jewish man who refuses to do so. Probably because of his a belief in not bowing to someone else and only worshiping God, similar to Daniel not wanting to bow before an idol. And Mordecai refuses to do so, and Haman is infuriated by this. So he decides, you know what, Mordecai the Jewish man, I hate him. I want to assassinate him. And just for good measure, let's assassinate all the other Jews. Let's wipe them all out. So he goes to the king, and he says, king, there's this guy, and he is, he is stuck up, and he won't submit, and he's a thorn in the flesh of, of our Persian kingdom, and we need to eliminate him, and all his people are like them too. So let's kill them all. And the king passes a decree and an edict and says, you know what, on this day of the month, give the money to the guards, and you know what, kill them all. And a decree goes forth throughout all the realm that the Jews are to be exterminated. Obviously, that's problematic for Mordecai because he's a Jewish man. This is also problematic for Esther. She's a Jewish woman, but she's a Jewish woman in secret. She has kept her national identity hidden, and the king doesn't even know that she's a Jew. So we pick up the story in verse number or chapter 4, verse number 1, where Mordecai uh, finds this out, and he has naturally some concern. And I've broken down this chapter into three simple words just to help you understand it. And the first word is consternation. There's this concern, this consternation, or this, this trouble of the heart in Mordecai. And he says in chapter 4, verse number 1, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, what's all that was done? Well, the decree to kill them all. When he perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent. His clothes, that would be similar to punching a wall or screaming into a pillow. Mordecai is visibly, externally upset. He rent his clothes, he put on sackcloth with ashes, a sort of maybe goat's hair material and ashes on his head and went into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth and that's an interesting verse. That you were not allowed to go into the palace corridor as a mourner, as someone who was upset. And it seems as though in the Persian kingdom, cardinal rule number one is never make the king unhappy. You find in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a guy who serves a Persian king. And he goes before the king one day with a sad look on his face. And the king perceives that there's a sad look. And, And the Bible says that Nehemiah knows that the king noticed the look on his face. And Nehemiah is fearful for his life. He's scared that he will die because he looked sad. So this is the kind of uh, person and the kind of mindset that you're dealing with here with a Persian king. That you don't don't mess with him. You don't make them unhappy. You do everything you can to appease this man. And so Mordecai knows the rules. I don't go inside the gate mourning with sackcloth and ashes. So he stays outside of the gate and he does this. And verse number 3 says, And in every province... Whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Fifteen million people just got put on death row, and they know it. The Jews are losing it, and rightfully so. These people are now pronounced dead. Dead. They are subjects under this kingdom, the Persian kingdom, at this point in time, which is roughly 480 B.C. It's it's extended across the whole world. There's no escaping this. There's no getting out from under this. They may be able to go hide under a rock for some period of time, but this is is the end. It's done. It's over. So Mordecai and and the Jews begin to begin to mourn, begin to have this consternation, this concern that bubbles up out of their hearts and out of their mouths and out of their actions becomes this concern. And and you see there's this deep grieving on the part of these people. And and naturally so, there there should be. And and you see that inside of Mordecai and inside of the Jews and frankly, inside of the Bible, there are people, grown men and women, who oftentimes are a mess and they mourn and they, they outwardly put their emotions on the line. And Mordecai has no problem publicly. He's dis- displaying his grief. And he's saying, this is, this is problematic for me. This is, my heart is affected by this. I'm weeping over this. And I can relate with Mordecai and the Jews here. In, in a sense, not in the sense that a death sentence has been or ever will be pronounced upon me. But I can relate with someone who's deeply troubled and wants to express that. You find all through Scripture that there are adult people who are troubled and they express it. And I know that that's antithetical to our culture by and large, that people don't express themselves that way. And, and by and large, we have a, a mentality of, I want to suck it up. I want people to think I'm okay. I'll put on my face. You know, I, I want to be tough as nails. I don't want them to think that when my medal's tested that I'll break. But you find a guy, an adult man, who mourns. And who grieves and, and puts it out there, and he doesn't take a, a stoicism mentality that I'm going to just try to absorb all of this and make everyone think that I'm okay, but he says this is, this is problematic for me, and I'm going to express this to God first and foremost, but even outwardly. And there's a lesson to be learned there for us, and that's a sidestep from prayer and fasting, but there's a lesson to be learned there. You if if you're the mentality that everything life comes down the highway at me and I just I absorb it all, I take it all in, I suck it all up, I don't ever let someone know that I have a problem, I would have one word of advice to you. Stop. I'm not saying to be an emotional basket case all the time, but at the same time, you're human. I'm human. We're we're real people, we're not robots, we're not machines. We have emotions and we have, we have problems. We have things that grip our hearts and cause us concern. And, and, and Mordecai has this and I can relate with him. I, I can feel his pain to a degree. I've been there where I'm concerned and I'm troubled and I have to express it to the Lord and even to my wife or to a counselor or someone else to say, hey, this is bothering me. And Mordecai goes and he expresses this openly, his, his consternation. But then there begins to unfold this conversation with him and Esther in verse number four. The Bible says that so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. When uh, then was the king exceedingly grieved and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. It's obvious that Esther doesn't exactly know what's going on. She's been sentenced to death and she doesn't even realize it. Mordecai's grieving, the Jews are grieving, and Esther is perplexed. Her response is, Hey, cousin, be of good cheer. Here's some clothes. Put them on. Be happy. What's, what's, What's all the hubbub about? And the Bible says that Mordecai refuses them, which tells us clearly that Esther is a lady who is not involved in behind the scenes policies. She's not involved in governing the kingdom. Esther is, and we'll see this a bit later, that Esther, at the end of the day, she's a trophy wife. She's a beautiful woman who uh, a pagan king said, I want her, she's my wife, the end. That's it. She's not involved in deep conversations with the king. She doesn't have some deep relationship there. She has no idea that she and her people have been sentenced to death and she tries to comfort Mordecai with this. And, and Mordecai says, no, I, I don't receive it. And then verse number five, then Esther called for Hatach, who I want to say Hatachi if you're a tool guy, but I'll do my best not to call him Hatachi. But Hatach, one of the king's chamberlains, wh- whom he had appointed to attend upon her and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Esther calls this guy and says, hey, go, go talk to my cousin and ask him what's going on. Why are you grieved? Why are you mourning? What are you doing here? What's, what's the point of all this? Go figure it out. So verse number six, Attach went forth to Mordecai to the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. And also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was written at Shushan to destroy them, to show it to Esther and declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king and make supplication before him and make request before him for her people. So Mordecai's response is Hey, here's what's going on. It's apparent that Mordecai is involved in some behind the scenes governing because he knows the amount of money that was given to make all this happen, which naturally he would not have known. He would have had to have some connections. He has a copy of the decree, which he'd probably have to have some connections for that. And Mordecai says, Look, go tell us, Esther, you're dead. Tell her we're all dead. If she doesn't believe me, tell her, here's how much money was given, and I got a copy of the writing. Her husband just pronounced her and me and us dead. So go give it to her and tell her, Esther, go talk to your husband. Esther, he's a maniac. Talk him off the ledge. Reason with him. Have a conversation with him. Tell him, Esther, we need your help right now. We need you to go to, to Xerxes, and we need you to tell him what he's done and, and express your concern for this. And Esther's reply in verse number 10. And again, Esther spake unto Hathach and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. And here's what she says. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever man or woman shall come unto the king in the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his, to put him to death, except to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live, but I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Here's what Esther says. Um, Cousin Mordecai, about that whole talk to my husband thing, um, yeah, that's not a great idea. He hasn't seen me or wanted to see me in a month. He hasn't talked to me. He he doesn't even have a desire to talk to me. And Mordecai, you know, people that go into the king, if he doesn't call them, that's life or death. He gives you the nod with the scepter, and you get to live and make your request known, or he doesn't, and you die. So this is kind of serious, man, and I really don't feel like talking to him. He apparently doesn't feel like talking to me either because he hasn't asked to see me in a month. So I don't think that's a good idea. And understand Esther's predicament. Her predecessor, and you can read about this, all chapter one of Esther sets the stage for this, and you can read about this, how it unfolds. Her predecessor was a lady named Vashti. Vashti was the queen, and the king summoned her. And for whatever reason, I don't know if she was sick, I don't know if she was busy, I don't know if she was just mad at the king, I don't know, but she said, no, I'm not coming. And the king decided, more or less, to banish her from the realm. And to say, you have no place here anywhere. And furthermore than that, I'm going to make a global example of you. I'm going to make sure that we write a decree to everyone and we put it in every single language and we spread it around so that people know Vashti crossed me and she got squashed. That's the whole chapter one of Esther. It's the same stage. But now Vashti's gone. And so the king's looking for a new bride. So he has a beauty pageant. And he brings in all the ladies. He says, you know what? Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. I think she's the hottest. She's my wife. That, that's really, that's the, that's the bottom line. It's the moral of the story. <laughs> Esther is a trophy wife, nothing more. I want her to be my wife. And there's no, there's no conversation about it. There's no choice about it. There's no, there's no dialogue about it. It's, hey, hey, honey, what's your name? Uh, Esther, Easter, Easter. Okay, you're my, no, Esther. Oh, whatever, you're my wife. It's, it's done at the end. So understand Esther's predicament here. This is, this is not going to bode well, she feels, with the king. I'm going to go in, and if the golden buzzer don't get pushed, I'm done. It's over. So she responds to Mordecai and says, Mordecai, yeah, um, I just don't think it's a great idea. And Mordecai converses back with her, and he says this in verse number 12. And they told Mordecai Esther's words and Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. And he gives a threefold argument for why you need to do this. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time. Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art coming to the kingdom for such a time as this? Mordecai says, Esther, look. You think the decree is going to go forth and you're going to escape. Your whole Jewishness may be a secret now, but you and your daddy and your mommy and your brother and your sister, you're dead. So your life is already on the line. And furthermore than that, Mordecai actually infuses a little bit of faith and says, hey, I believe that there will be deliverance and there will be help that comes from somewhere. I believe God's promise is that we're not going to be exterminated, but that, that maybe, Esther, maybe, maybe this is supposed to be from you. Maybe, you're, maybe God was in control of all this. Maybe he was setting the stage. Maybe you've come into the kingdom for this time. Maybe this has been God's plan all along and we've, we've scratched our heads and we've wondered, and why am I now a, a prisoner and why am I now a, a wife and wh- why do I have to go through all this? Maybe God was behind it all, Esther. So what, what Mordecai is doing is he is infusing or attempting to infuse some faith into his cousin. He's attempting to say, Esther, step out in faith and trust God. And Esther, if you don't want to step out in faith, what logical recourse do you have anyway? What, what options are on the table? And at this point in time, here's, here's what you have. And this is an encouragement to me, and hopefully it's an encouragement to you. You have a guy, Mordecai, and a lady, Esther, Jewish people, who for four chapters have been incognito essentially about their faith. Mordecai has this butting of heads with Haman and refuses to bow, but he also tells Esther, Esther, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Shh, keep it secret. Which really probably wasn't the best advice. It's It's more expedient than it is actually rooted in biblical principle. And thus far, Esther has had to demonstrate zero faith, not a lick. She hasn't had to talk about her heritage, who she is, what she believes, what she stands for, the the Torah, the Old Testament, none of it. She's she's put forth zero faith. But God has seen fit to put her in a spot to be used of him greatly. And that encourages me because I see in Esther a lady who, frankly, is not the greatest religious person in the world. She frankly up until this point hasn't, hasn't stood her ground. She hasn't said, hey, I'm, I'm a God-fearer and I believe in Jehovah. None of that. She's done very little to be a model example of what you would want in a, in, in a Jewish religious person. But she's still a lady that God desires to use and he's put her in a situation. And, and I take heart in that. Because I can oftentimes look at Scripture or look at people that are used of God, these missionaries or this person or that person, I can say, man, they must be a spiritual giant. They must have the world's greatest prayer life. They must have boatloads of faith. They must just be at a whole other level than I am. That's why God's choosing to use them. But you find in the case of Esther, that's that's not accurate. And beyond that, you find that all through the Bible. You find that Peter's a mess and you find that Paul's a mess and you find that Jonah's a mess. You find all kinds of people are a mess. But you find that Esther, frankly, is not some, some super Christian. She's just a, a normal girl with a lot of fears and a lot of complications and a lot of things that she's worried about and trying to figure out, but God wants to use her. And Mordecai says, Esther, step out in faith. Esther, know that you, you can trust as, uh, as, I forget who it was, but someone said you can trust an unknown future to a, to a known God. He says, Esther, look, trust him. Know that you can give it to him and and step out on faith. And Esther's response is really where the rubber meets the road for us this morning. She says in verse number 15, then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, that's that's the capital, and fast ye for me. Neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens, Will fast likewise. So will I go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Mordecai flips the switch and he turns on some faith and he prompts Esther to do the same. And Esther's response is what I would call a conviction. And you see rooted in her response, a twofold conviction. It's simple. It's utterly simple. But it's the conviction that I'd like for you to walk out of here this morning with. Conviction number one is, I am thoroughly convinced that this is beyond me. Esther is thoroughly convinced, I cannot do this on my own. I need God's help. Otherwise, why would she ask Mordecai to pray and to fast? It's not, hey, uh, give, me, give me some great verbiage, you know, wordsmith this for me so I can butter up the king. It's not, hey, uh, make sure that you get me the best dress so that I can look the prettiest. It's none of that. It's, Mordecai, go pray and go fast and get everybody else you can to start praying and fasting. And I'm going to start praying and fasting. And I'm going to get all my chambermaids to start praying and fasting. we gotta, We got to get God on this. I can't do this myself. I'm in over my head. I'm out of my depth. There's nothing I can do. God has to do this for us, Mordecai. So let's trust in him. Conviction number two that is apparent from the text is that Esther firmly believes that in order to trust in God and to receive God's power and God's blessing and God's help, hey, let's pray and let's fast. Let's do something here to show God that we're serious, that we mean business, that there's something inside of us that we're not, we're not playing a game here, that this is, this is life and death, this matters to us, so let's demonstrate that. Let's show God we mean business and let's do that by praying and fasting. So that he will look down and see this group of people that are, that are mourning and, are, and are, are praying, are fasting, are seeking him. And he says, you know what? I'm going to help there. Her conviction is simple. We have to do this with God's strength and power. We can't do it on our own. And in order to get that, let's pray and fast. Let's ask him. Let's seek him. And Esther's call to fast is not, it's not a little one. It's, it's actually a relatively extreme call to fast. There's, if you notice in verse 16, there's several things that, that she says. She says, first, let's not eat or drink. Normal fasting, if I could give you a, a normal fast, what that is, it's, it's I refuse to eat. But typically you would drink water or sometimes you can even do a juice fast or something like that. But normal fasting is I, I don't eat, but I do drink. And Esther says, no, we're going for broke here. Let's not eat and let's not drink. And then she says this, day or night. In Jewish culture, when, it, when a fast would happen, typically you would fast through the day, and when you got out of the field and out of your work and those sorts of things and you got home for the evening, then you could eat. The, it was almost like an intermittent fast. Then I fasted part of the day, then I spent some time with family and I ate for the rest of the day. It was similar to maybe a, a Muslim Ramadan or something, that you fast this portion then you can eat at night. And she says, look, let's, let's, let's not eat, let's not drink, let's do it day and night, and let's do it for three days. There's a lot of fasting uh, portrayed in the Bible from different people, but uh, ironically, there's only one time that the Jews were commanded to fast. That was the Day of Atonement, just one day. And Esther says, look, three days, night and day, meat and drink, what, let's, let's just do as, as much as we can We got to get a hold of God. Let's do this. Let's fast. Let's be serious. Let let's show Him this. And here Esther is conveyed a heart of utter and total dependence. That God, I need you. God, I have to have your help. God, we have to have your help, and we want to show this to you. And Esther gives us this window into what our heart should be when it comes to prayer and fasting. But at the end of the day, her convictions hold true for us. We don't, we're, we're Esther-esque in the sense of we're human, we mess up, we're not always spiritual giants, and we need God's help. I'm talking about you personally, to walk the Christian life. I'm talking about your family, for your children to turn out as mighty men who live for the glory of God or mighty little uh, ladies who live for the glory of God. That's That's not happening just because of you. If our our church does something and the gospel is spread and people are reached and lives are changed and the Spirit of God moves, that's not not up to us. That's not up to strategy. That's not contained in a connection card or parking signs or those sorts of things. I'm all for working and strategy and being wise. But at the end of the day, it's God that we depend on. We, we, We trust and we accept and we know That this is done through his power. This is done through his strength. Not our might and our spirit, but by his spirit. And so I I can connect with Esther there. That this depends on God. And I can also connect that the Bible communicates very clearly that prayer coupled with fasting means something big to God. It communicates a heart of seriousness to God. And in fasting, if I could give you just a a kind of textbook definition of that, that, and it's necessary for us to know, it is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for a spiritual purpose. Okay, so it's something that's done from a believer. It really is is almost pointless for for a non-believer to do that. It's voluntary abstinence. It's not someone twisting your arm. It's I choose in my heart that I want to do this, and and I remove myself from food for a season. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's a day. Maybe it's three days. Maybe it's seven. In the case of Jesus, it was 40. But I remove myself for a season for a spiritual purpose. It's not, it's not just supposed to be some sort of spiritual discipline that now I, I can, you know, uh, somehow manufacture character with. It's supposed to be there's a spiritual intention behind it. Practically speaking, that would work this way. You're fasting. And what happens when you fast? Your stomach tells you, I'm hungry, right? There are hunger pains that come along. If you're a coffee addict, you're certainly going to have a headache. You say, oh, man, I, I have to not eat and not drink coffee, well, it's, it's up to you. But I would say just drink water. Well, it's up to you. But maybe a headache comes, your body starts to communicate to you, and your brain starts to connect it up. Man, I'm, that hurts. Why did that? Oh, yeah, it's because I'm fasting today. And then behind that should be, and I'm fasting today because, not just because I want to be a machine and be spiritually disciplined for the fun of it, but no, I'm hungry. Oh, yeah, that's because I'm fasting. I'm fasting because... I'm praying for the salvation of my dad and my mom, my loved one. I'm fasting because I, my, my kids are struggling right now, and I know it, and God knows it, and they know it, and I, I, don't feel what to, I don't know what to do. I'm at my wit's end. God, I need your help. I'm fasting because there's this giant trial or this difficulty or this, this stress factor in my life, and God, I need you. Whatever it is, the root there, it's here's the purpose And then that attaches to that. You say, God, because of this hunger pain, that just cued me to pray to you and ask you, God, help me. God, I'm serious. I need you. I want you. I desire you. We just sang a a moment ago, as the deer, I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver. I want you more than anything. We sang it, but is that accurate? Do we want it more than lunch? Or dinner? Or dinner? That's crazy. Why, why, would I, why would I starve myself? Why would I do that? Does, that? does that give me some credit with God? Now he's a magic genie I can rub and do whatever I want? No. And Esther knows that. She says, go pray and fast three days, night and day, hunger and drink, or meat and drink, do it all. And then she says, if I perish, I perish. It's apparent in Esther's life that she doesn't think this is a magic bullet to get her way with God however she wants she does think it communicates seriousness. She does think that it, will, that it will kind of fortify and help her plead to the Lord, but she doesn't think that she gets whatever she wants. And fasting is not that way. It's not now you have leeway to go ask or get anything that you want, but it is meant to communicate a seriousness on our part to the heart of God that, hey, I'm fasting for this reason. It means something to me. God, would you do this? This is, this is something that should be part of our lives. It's part of of the Bible. You find all through the Bible. Ezra fasts. He's taking a 900-mile journey. They need a lot of safety, so they get together and say, let's pray and fast about it. Nehemiah fasts. Nehemiah 1.4 says that he's a man of fasting and prayer continually. Daniel fasts in Daniel chapter 9. He's a man who prays. He's also a a man who fasts. You find that Joel instructed people to fast. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He instructed his disciples to fast. You find that the church at Antioch, After Jesus uh, is is gone, you find that there's church at Antioch, Acts chapter 4. They want to separate Paul and Barnabas into the mission field, and they feel that the Holy Ghost is impressing upon them to do something. So they pray, and they fast, and then they lay hands on them, and they send them out. 1 Corinthians 7, you find that there's instruction to couples that, hey, couples, uh, you can, I, I give you permission to remove yourself from each other physically. And the purpose of that would be maybe if you're praying and fasting, and you're focusing on your relationship with your Lord. That's, that's all through the Bible, prayer and fasting. So the, the question it begs of us is, do we do that? Is, that? is that even part of our spiritual routine, part of our prayer lives? Once a month, once a quarter, once a year maybe? Is that, is that do we think about that? This is it something that we've implemented? This is something that we take seriously? Fasting, at the end of the day, it's a privilege. It's not a, it's, not a, it's not a torture sentence. And it's not, it's also not, it can be used in a physical way, but fasting is not meant to be biblically a crash diet. If you want to use it in a physical way, okay, but really it's designed to be a spiritual side effect. Fasting is, it's an opportunity. It's a tool. It's a privilege that God has given us and said you really want to communicate some seriousness to me? Pray, yes. Seek me, yes. But but fast. And I would ask you in your own life what is it that's, that's important enough for you to do that for? I would hope that maybe some neighbors or some loved ones that are unsaved would necessitate that or call you to action there. I would hope that Your children growing up and living for Jesus would necessitate that and call you to action. I would hope that just your relationship with the Lord, just to say one day, Lord, I'm going to fast, and God, I don't even need anything. I just, the point of this is to tell you that I love you and I'm serious about that. I would hope that even just our church, that it would be big enough and this place would mean enough to you that we take it seriously. We not only pray for our church, but we fast for it. So God, help us. God, we can't do this on our own. We can't, we, we can't do effective gospel ministry in our own power. Would you help us? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us power? Would you protect us spiritually and physically? Lead us not into temptation. Would you do that? God, would you use our church to spread the gospel here and around the world? Would you, we want your power. We want you. I would hope that that would that that would call us to action, that there's a request that's big enough, heavy enough, serious enough that we would consider praying and fasting about it. There's something about fasting that starts to sharpen the edge of our prayers and starts to hone us in and give us a deeper urgency and a deeper passion in our prayer lives. My, My ask for you and for the church and really the main purpose of Today's message, is it to elaborate on fasting and give you some, here's what it is or what it isn't, that sort of thing? Yeah, but really the main purpose for me preaching this this morning is to ask you to do it. Here's my ask. They're on the back of your connection card too. They're already in your next steps. My ask is that you would consider doing this this week. Now maybe it's a meal. Maybe you can't go a day. You just, you couldn't, you couldn't stomach it. No pun intended. Maybe, maybe it's a meal, maybe it's a day. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's five. all through the Bible, there's all kinds of different times that people went. Part of a day, whole day, three day, five day, seven day, 14, 21, uh, 40. There's there's a lot of different time frames people went. The first three days will be the worst. After that, it's actually kind of humdrum. The hunger pains go away. So my, my ask for you this week is that you would fast. You say, fast why? Well, maybe there's something personally that's on your heart and mind, but my biggest ask is that you would just fast for our church. say, so why? Is there, some, is there some, something behind the curtain? We're going to pull it back and there's some. Be- no. But I understand, and I hope that you do as well, like Esther did, that the only way church works is in the power of God. The only way that people are saved and people are matured and they become mature followers of Jesus and they start to live for Him and we engage in effective gospel ministry is in God's strength and power. I understand fully the only way that I even have a, a, a tiny even a bit of wisdom to lead and to guide and our other pastors and deacons have, have, have what we need to be able to lead the church is only through God's through His wisdom. It's like Solomon when he inherits the kingdom. And Solomon says, God, this kind of overwhelms me. I feel like a child. I don't know how to go in. I don't know how to come out. Give me your wisdom. The only way that's made possible is through God. It's through his hand, him him giving that. The only way that we move forward and that we're protected spiritually and physically, it's not in us. It's in God. And as such, I would ask that you would consider this week a meal or a day or a couple days to get serious about it. And to say, Lord, help us. Lord, take the reins. Be in control. Guide us. Bless us. We want your power. We want your help. Maybe, maybe you pray through that sheet we gave you in the bulletin, that you pray through that model prayer that day as you skip lunch and you just take that extra time and you spend it in prayer. I don't know how exactly that is for you, but my, my ask is that you would consider, even strongly consider, and, and in your own heart and mind commit to, you know what, I'm going to do that. Now, that being said, if you're a diabetic or you're pregnant and this is going to put you in the hospital, okay, don't. Uh, don't. Don't be foolish about it. But for the vast majority of us, it's something we could do. More than that, it's probably something we should do. To communicate, God, we're serious. We want you. We need you. Whatever is in your own life, give it to him. And pray and fast about it. I'll end with this, chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to see the result of this fasting. I don't want to leave you hanging. Did Esther die or not? Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, it came to pass on the third day. So they fast these three days, and the fast is done, and Esther's going to go take her step of faith. That day, Esther put on her royal apparel. She stood in the inner court of the king's house. Now, make note of that standing, and not just going in, but standing, is, is a big deal. You do, in, in, the, in this day and age, uh, uh, a king is essentially deity. That's so how he thinks of himself. And you bow before him. You fall on the ground before him. You don't, you don't stand in front of him. You don't walk in without his permission. And then you, don't, you definitely don't walk in and just stand there. But the Bible says that Esther ca- comes and she, she stands in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, Drum roll, please. And she obtained favor in his sight. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter, and the king said to her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? What's thy request? I can imagine what her heart was doing in that moment, how it was beating. What's thy request? It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. I won't walk you through the rest of the story. You can read it in your own time. It's a beautiful plot that unfolds and ends up ending with the Jews being saved, and Haman, the man who wants to exterminate them, is, uh, is, it gets hung on the gallows that he made. But the bottom line is this. They prayed, they fasted, they stepped out on faith, and God granted and God blessed, and God answered their prayers. He flexed his muscles a little bit. He showed himself strong, and he continues through the book to continue to do that and to save Esther and her people. And I have to believe that God looks down from heaven and sees a group of Jewish people praying and fasting and taking something seriously and grants the request. I have to see if he looks down on a pagan, a people of Nineveh who pray and they fast and they repent before God, and he sees that and takes it seriously and shows mercy and grace to them that he too would look down from heaven and see Harvest Baptist Church. There's a few people in the Toronto Heights and in this area saying, you know what, this is serious to us. And if you saw 50 or 100 or 200 or 300 or 400 or 500 people in the course of a given week that said, hey, I'm forgoing a meal, I'm forgoing a couple meals, I'm forgoing a couple days of meals because this is serious to, go- to us, God. Give us your wisdom, give us your help, give us your protection, and allow us to engage in gospel ministry and see the gospel go forward. Then we'd have to look down and smile. And say, I want to bless, and I want to be there, and I want to show my power, and I want to, I want to use them. And my ask for you is, is that simple. This week, you would consider doing that.